Lakers winning the championship means it's the NBA offseason. This is what we will be addressing with Bobby Marks of ESPN here on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga. L.A. claims the title in six games over the Heat. And quick take before we get to Bobby. Clearly, watching the best player of a generation in LeBron James, you know how good he is. We saw him how great he is against the Jazz when they played in the seeding games. He's already first in points, in games, in steals, second in assists, three-pointers, sixth in rebounds. These are playoff categories. With all the great names, with all the great players that came before, he is in the top 10 in those categories. You know, the major categories that we think about? I know. Entire sports networks, podcasts are devoted to how great he is. It's because he is great. Because it's insane. What we're watching, it's special. And we should appreciate it as special. And that's why when we had Joy Taylor on last pod, I was excited to hear what the Miami Heat perspective was. Because they were the lovable underdogs. The first time that they've been lovable underdogs against the big team. They, they used to have LeBron. And I'm happy that we were able to highlight the other team in the finals. It's competitive. Six games. The way that Miami fought can't be discounted. How great of a season they had. Being able to take down the number one seed in their conference. The MVP. The defensive player of the year. And the way that that team's going to build... They're going to try and get another star alongside Jimmy Butler. They have their plans. They have a direction. And that's what it takes in this league. Now, I think the Jazz have a direction. During the playoffs, the leader in points. Most points in a game. That was Donovan Mitchell. The way he showed he was able to rise to the occasion. Huge building blocks. Huge optimism around here. And what he could do in another season. So let's get to it. Bobby Marks, ESPN's front office insider. We'll look at the draft, get the draft guests on, the Mike Schmitz, Jonathan Gavoni, the the names that you know. We'll get those guys as we continue here on the show. As always, subscribe. Make sure others know that you're listening to the podcast. Five stars, nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Special episode on Monday. So it'll be a a double drop for you. Friday, Monday, published schedule. Because I have to let you know about what we're doing here in the jazz shop. So we'll open up the garage, let you see. Enjoy Bobby Marks. We caught up right after the news of Daryl Morey left the Houston Rockets. So just giving you a timestamp on that. But it's a pretty evergreen conversation, as they all are. We started off with how we got into this crazy business. But you know, I was a college football player. I was not a college basketball player. I didn't. I wasn't a manager at one of these big schools. I played college football at Marist College. Um, it's a home of Rick Smits for all those people back in the '80s who follow or '90s who followed those Indiana Pacers teams. Um, but I, um, I struggled academically <laughs> in college, and I didn't get my footing until probably my junior and senior year. And by that time, I was um, a little bit behind with my credits, and I needed to do an internship to graduate. And um, fortunately, um, I had a friend who I grew up with who lived in a, a townhouse with um, Scott O'Neill, who is now the president of the 76ers, but he was, a, he was selling tickets for the Nets at the time and got my resume to him. 
he got it to our the VP of um, uh, at the Nets, and I interviewed for an internship um, thanks right before Thanksgiving in 1994, and landed an internship, but in public relations, and I got my six credits, but it was. Um, probably not what I wanted to do. I was, it was cutting newspaper clips and writing press releases and um, putting together the media guide. Um, but it was an internship and it was for a pro basketball team. Um, the Nets, probably like most organizations, were really small back then. And um, I, I was able to dabble a little bit in basketball operations during that. Um, the Nets basketball operations department was very small. <laughs> the general manager was Wills Reed. We had one head coach in Butch Beard, two assistant coaches. We had a secretary, some, a few scouts. I would say probably maybe 12 people total. So when my internship was over in, um, in August of 95, I asked Willis if I could stay on and do another internship for free, um, which is taboo these days. Nobody likes free work, right? That, you know, it has to be for credit or for a stipend. And Willis said, sure. And so I stayed on and did an internship working in basketball operations in uh, from September of 95 until January of 96. I worked my first training camp at Kutztown State in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, at the time, we had Kenny Anderson, Derek Coleman, Rick Mahorn. Uh, we had an a, a interesting cast of characters, PJ Brown, Kevin Edwards, um, and wound up getting a full-time job in, in January of 96, making $18,000 a year, and it was the greatest experience of my life. But I was living at home, and I had college graduation money, and, um, and that's really how it all started was through my internship. And little by little, I kind of added, some, um, you know, I would say probably even when Coach Cal Perry came on in 96, I was still probably a glorified intern because I was almost like a manager for him. I was running all over the place 20 hours a day. Um, I started to learn a salary cap in the CBA, how contracts work in, uh, in 2000 when Rod Thorne took over. Um, you know, was handling 30 different things, including player development, team travel, the draft, free agency, everything. And then when Billy King came in in 2010, the 30 things that I was doing got pared down to 10. And it was really primarily front office work. But yeah, that's, um, that's how I got into, uh, into the basketball world where uh, there was a lot of us, you know, back then that did internships. I mean, Eric Spolstra in um, in Miami was a video intern. Frank Vogel was a, a video intern. Um, you know, I was, you know, a basketball ops intern and, and that's kind of how I got my, my foot in the door. Well, and, and with 96, you, uh, you actually were in one of the books that I'm reading right now, Jeff Perlman's yeah. three ring circus, and it goes into the drafting of Kobe Bryant. I come across the name, Oh, Bobby Marks. <laughs> I'm going to be talking to him tomorrow. Uh, can you share a little light on, sure. on that story and what you were doing back then with uh, Coach Cal Parry and crew? Well, well, actually, Cal hadn't taken – well, I'll, let's go back. Um, Cal had come over in May. I actually got to go see Kobe play um, in, I want to say it was February, January, February of 96, and when Willis okay. was still the GM. And I had heard about this guy, and we didn't – you know, the internet was not a, basically around and all this social media – and I had heard about this, this player, 17, 18 year old named Kobe Bryant. And um, I asked Wills to jump on a, a train and go down to Philly and watch him play. And uh, I was mesmerized when I saw him play. Um, I mean, he was special then. Um, so fast forward four or five months later when Cal got hired, um, we, uh, we brought in Kobe uh, about four times, maybe even five times for individual draft workouts. And I served as his, um, his guide or his host each time. And 
It's interesting because the rules back then are different than now. Back then, you were allowed to have your own NBA players work out against draft prospects. Uh, I think you had to have less than three years of experience in the league. So um, uh, we had Ed O'Bannon and Khalid Reeves, some of those players who worked out against Kobe um, to give us kind of a gauge. And Kobe was tremendous. <laughs> I mean, you could tell he was special to the point. We had um, Tracy McGrady worked out the following year. And Tracy turned out to be a, you know, one heck of a player too, but wasn't in that uh, category. And um, yeah, so I thought we were going to draft Kobe Bryant. And um, there was a meeting the night before the draft at the Radisson uh, in Sea Caucus on Route 3 East. Coach Cal Perry had a suite on the top floor. And uh, the meeting was with Arn Tellum and uh, his parents, Kobe's parents. And um, we wound up drafting Kerry Kittles out of that because there was the threat that Kobe would never come play here. Cal was a 35, 36-year-old coach and never coached in the NBA. Um, this, his first big splash could not be a Kobe Bryant playing in Italy. So we, um, we drafted Kerry Kittles and uh, Kerry had a good career for us and um, you know, got hurt a little bit, but then was not part of those two finals teams, um, but was um, not Kobe Bryant. <laughs> the good thing there's, there was a lot of other teams that did pass on, on Kobe uh, also, but yeah, that's probably one of the biggest um, regrets because you knew it wasn't like there was an injury or maybe this, the, the potential, maybe it was going to be there five or six. You knew in that workout how, um, how special he could be. What was that draft workout like? What sets apart a Kobe workout from a Tracy McGrady? Just domination, complete domination. We, uh, so it's funny, we didn't have a practice facility. We were using Fairleigh Dickinson Teaneck as our practice facility and um, it's different than, you know, um, Dennis or Justin wanting to say, hey, draft workouts are at 1030, right? We had to basically work around the women's basketball team, the volleyball team, the men's basketball team. So we didn't have time. So we like, you know, Kobe's workout was at three in the afternoon. Um, it was at two o'clock on a Saturday. It was all over the place here. I think it was just a do complete domination. I think it was just effortless. Um, I think he could have probably gone another hour and a half, two hours. I think there was so much effort. He already had NBA type moves. I mean, I think he still had to polish some. Um, Tracy struggled a little bit because Tracy had to think had a hamstring coming in um, with his workout. And plus we had already had Kobe for his workout. So the bar had already been set um, that high, but yeah, one, I, you know, it's funny. I, we, we video back then we had videotapes and um there's somewhere in a box of storage in my house somewhere is that infamous Kobe Bryant workout. And when I have the, 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 uh, the, the effort to, to look through it, I will um, spend hours trying to find that thing. Was he the best draft workout you've ever seen? You know what? I would say the best draft workout against players that I've ever seen. Um, the best draft workout against air or against a broom right. was probably Keith Van Horn the following year. Wow. Um, just the way that Keith, you know, Keith was 6'10", and probably to be how he shot the ball. I mean, I think Keith took 53s and maybe he missed two. Um, but he wasn't going against anyone. A broom, an air. So, <laughs> but that was probably the best, you know, one-on-oh workout that I've, um, that I've seen. But Kobe against individual players was the, was the best one. What was the transition from your 30 things to the yeah. 10 things that you had once you got to 2010 in uh, Billy King? It was hard because I have a hard time delegating. Um, I like to do everything on my own. 
So um, it was hard transitioning to give people things to do that I was already, I had you know, a little bit of a control problem on that. The transition is interesting because by then I had already been with the Nets 15 years. And I always said that if you were going to move into um, off the fence, right? So I would say I survived coaches, general managers, owners, that you have to probably get off the fence. You can't straddle it forever. So you go into the frying pot, right? Like now are, you are a decision maker. You are part of a front office. You have input on, on what the training camp roster looks like, what the draft looks like, what free agency, who you're picking, who, what trades. You're, you're a part of that decision decision making process here. And um, it was something I, I embraced. I mean, it was something I knew if I ever was going to move up or, you know, do something else that um, I couldn't be stagnant in that, in that role. And um, it was, uh, it was crazy because Billy uh, Rod Thorne had, um, had conducted the dra- uh, the free agency in the draft of 2010. We had drafted Derek Favors that year. Um, we had uh, went through the whole LeBron and Bosch and Wade um, free agency. Um, Rod was on his way out and Billy came in in, um, I guess, late January, maybe even early August. And a lot of the work had already been done. But the, one of the first big things was the Carmelo. I mean, we spent six months on Carmelo. Bill, that was Billy's big, um, big, uh, you know, that was his big goal as far as trying to land that superstar player. And it's funny. When we started with Carmelo, he, uh, I remember him calling me. He's like, do you know who this guy in Denver is? This some, I don't know. I never even heard him. Some guy, Masai, like who, like who is this? Is he a scout or something? I was like, I don't know. I don't know who Masai Ujiri is. And it was now Masai Ujiri who's in Toronto. Who's the, you got to know who the Masai Ujiri is. But, we, but nobody knew who he was in 2010. And that was Masai's big thing. You know, the Carmelo, that was, he like, he jumped right into the fire also. And we, you know, there were so many times that we thought we had deals done and we didn't have deals and went through the season and multiple contingencies. And one of the rare times when um, teams allowed a player to talk with other teams, that doesn't really happen now where you give permission. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then the Knicks kind of when it came in with a bigger offer and um, we shifted, uh, we shifted elsewhere. One of the places that the Nets did shift happened to be, a player that was in Utah, Darren Williams. The trade that occurred between those two teams set Utah down a path where they saw Derek Favors reach pretty nice heights. Take me inside that deal and what led to the option of Darren Williams being a guy that you guys went for. Well, Billy had a relationship with Kevin O'Connor, who was the general manager at the time from Philadelphia. Um, There was a working relationship there. After we had missed out on Carmelo, um, it was All-Star Weekend of 2011. Um, we, I had come into the office on that Tuesday, and um, whenever Billy's door was shut or even Rod's door was shut, you knew, like, there was something going on, right? So we walk in there, and he says, what do you think about Darren Williams? And I said, what do you mean, Darren? You know, like, you know, Darren at the time, everyone was, was him and Chris Paul, right? Like, those were the two guys as far as the best um, – and there were, you know, stuff had happened with coach Sloan and um, you know, there was that transition there. And, and he says, I think we can, we have an opportunity of going out and getting him. And it was probably less than the price, a half of the price of what we were probably offering, you know, with Carmelo. Carmelo was basically take what you want uh, except for maybe Brooke or Derek or Derek was like one or the other. And, you know, this is, it was like, this is what it will cost us. So it was Derek it was Devin Harris. Um, 
it was the, that pick in that year's draft. I think maybe it was a future pick we had from another team. And they said, you know, they're going to sleep on it and they're going to make it, they're going to have a decision um, the ne- you know, the next day. Cause I think we can probably do something here. And I said, well, shoot, if we, we had been working so much on Carmelo, you know, Darren, we needed, you know, it's hard to find point guards in this league. And Darren still had, um, I'm like Carmelo who's going to be a free agent. Um, Darren still had another year left on his contract. So it wasn't like we had him on an expiring um, we can use that year and a half to sell him. We were going to be in Brooklyn in 2012. Um, team probably wasn't as good as it was in, in Utah, but at least there was, you know, we had a, a, um, 18 months to sell him and his family on, on that. And um, the next morning we, you know, walked in, he says, we got a deal, you know, and we went through the process. The hard part is, you know, it's wasn't as bad back in 2011 as is now, but when things get out in the media, um, you know, this player is going to be traded or, um, you know, rumors. And I had to, you had to go pull Derek off the court. Um, you know, I think De- Devin probably already knew, you know, he was going to be dealt somewhere <laughs> because his name was in the trade rumors. And yeah, and that's how the, um, that's how the Darren Williams trade happened. How do you deal with players when they know that their names are going to be involved in, in deals with the trade deadline coming up? It's hard. I mean, we went through it. I mean, the, De- the Carmelo rumor started, in um or the carmelo trades you know speculation started that was in um september right before training camp started so these guys went through you know four or five months of dealing with this in the news you know the 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 person who dealt with it the most was brooke lopez i mean brooke was involved (laughs) in every type of trade possible and by the by that by the time you know it was over you know you, you just kind of move on to it but um, Brooke had one of his best games when he thought he was going to get traded. <laughs> I think we were, he was getting traded to Charlotte maybe. And he went up and played a heck of a game in Washington. And Brooke dealt with that for, I mean, he dealt with it with Carmelo. He dealt with it with Dwight. He dealt with it, the, um, you know, in 2000, uh, 2013, as far as where he was going. Um, some guys, uh, you know, some guys deal with it differently. Some guys get to go out and play, but yeah, it does. These guys are human beings. So it does affect you. What's easier being in the media or in the general manager, assistant GM role, uh, with the Nets? I don't know. It's different. I mean, I think, um, when you work for a team, um, there's nothing better than being in an office, an office environment with other people with one goal of trying to win a championship and being part of a team. Right. Um, I don't think I missed the win, the losses. Right. I don't think you miss the losses, the high, the lows of what comes with it. Um, the media part of it is different because um, there's the pressure from deadlines as far as writing. Um, there's the pressure of being on call 24 hours, basically. Um, it's, um, it's different because I think your relationship with the 30 teams are probably better, um, because I don't have, there's no agenda for me. You know, I'm not, I'm not a newsbreaker. So when, if, you know, if there's a story or if there's a trade that happens or if player signs, I can call that team afterward and say, like, walk me through what you did, because I'm going to write about it and give me some, um, perspective on that. Um, it is different though, because you are, you're not part of a, you know, the jazz or the Celtics here. You're kind of a, you know, you're, we have an ESPN team of NBA people who are great, but, um, it is a little bit, um, it is a little bit different here, but I'm in year, this is year five. I mean, I've been on the league since 2015. So I've accustomed, I've grown to it. 
Um, I think it was probably more challenging a little bit in the beginning when you're, when you're away from it and you have so many routines. Did you ever deal with uh, Justin Zanuck as an agent? I did. I, I dealt with Justin twice. I just dealt with Justin when he worked for Mark Bartlestein and I dealt with Justin when he worked for Andy Miller. Um, yeah, I've known Justin for a long time. Um, we've got a really good relationship. He's one of the, um, he's one of the best, um, you know, when I, uh, I didn't have my contract renewed in 2015, um, you, I always ex ex uh, explain this to people when they are not wanted back, that there's periods of grief you go through, right? And, um, you know, the periods of grief are basically that in the beginning, everybody calls you, right? Like, hey, I'm sorry, you know, like, let me know if I can do it with anything. The second period of grief is people who didn't know it about it and are were on vacation and all of a sudden start calling you like week three, or maybe it's, it's your family still. And then the third week or the third phase is basically your friends and family. Right. But then there are that handful of executives that you've worked with that keep in touch with you. Right. That, um, so Justin, Andy Ellisberg in Miami, Peter Dinwiddie in, um, Indiana, uh, Pete D'Alessandro, who's in Orlando, your group of 10 guys who check in on you. And when you're, uh, when you're home and, and Justin says, hey, why don't you come out and spend um, some time with us in Utah, you know, during training camp. And, you know, I'm out in that, I went out there and I paid for my own ticket and went out and spent a week with those, you know, some time in Utah. And it was, I, there was nothing for me to gain. I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't writing anything. And um, so that's, you know, when you remember things that when you go through periods of life, like, all right, you know, there are people there who are there for you when it just happens, but who are kind of the people there when, um, you know, down the road when you get forgotten, right? Like when you're out of the league, people forget about you, not on purpose, just because of like, they move on to the next thing. Well, and general managers, they're always long-term planning, sure. short-term planning. It, it's all focused ahead. That That is really remarkable what he did. What is the uh, temperature around the league for Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanuck, Dennis Morway, and this front office group? Fair. No bullshit about him. Um, if you want to get a deal done, you can get a deal done, and it won't get out in the news. I mean, that's how you want it. If you want to get a trade done, um, and, you know – there are, uh, and it's a relationship building, right? I mean, you, you could look, go back and look at um, their track record of who the teams they deal with. They've got a good relationship with Cleveland, right? There've been multiple trades. You know, you get Jordan Clarkson from, um, you know, from, from Cleveland. Um, there's, you know, there's a relationship they did, you know, there's been deals with the, you know, the Lakers and stuff like, so there's, you have a trust level with certain teams because you know that, you know, it's, it's okay when stuff gets out when the deal just happens, right? Like if, if there's an agreement in place and the deal gets out and maybe your players know and it, and it gets out, that's fine. But when something gets out and it basically kills the deal, you know, like that's like, you know, that's when you kind of walk in. Then teams don't want to deal with you. You know, they don't want to deal with you because you don't want to go down that road. But um, three, three guys that are extremely fair, that are open, um, I think the best part about those guys is that you can talk to them and you don't have to talk about basketball. I mean, like you can like, like I can talk to Justin and talk about his kids or the same with David or even, you know, Dennis. I mean, I had the opportunity to go out there um, back in um, right before training camp um, this past year. And we went out to dinner and it wasn't talking about 
Donovan Mitchell's rookie extension or Rudy Gobert's Supermax and stuff. It was like just bull. You know, you can just talk about, um, you know, life in general. I mean, and Justin is, is such a, you could tell why he was an agent. You could tell, oh, this guy knows how to deal with people and, and he is great with, with relationships in, in that respect. Let's get to what the Jazz's offseason could yeah. look like where you have the extensions being the huge mm. question hovering above uh, this team. Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell. What's the outlook on those two extensions, two that will definitely be a lot of money for both those players? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll start with Donovan, um, rookie extension eligible, going into the fourth year of, of that rookie contract. Um, they can offer up to 25% of the cap. We'll see where the cap comes in at. If, it's, um, if it stays at 109, which is where it was this, this current year, um, it's right around $158 million. Um, over five years, um, you have the option of negotiating all, all NBA language. We've seen that before with um, other players. Ben Simmons had that, Pascal Siakam. So you can go up to 30%. If uh, Donovan Mitchell earns all NBA first team, then maybe it's 30% of the cap here. And I think where, um, you know, and I wrote about it in their offseason article, I think where they are with the salary cap, um, you know, where, where they pick Donovan, they have an advantage because his cap hold is lower than it would be um, the number one pick in the draft. But they're a team that um, doesn't have probably as much cap flexibility in 2021 if the goal is to bring this, um, this group back. So I think you probably have to be aggressive with, um, with Donovan. You know, uh, to, you know, probably him, Jason Tatum, probably another good name as far as, um, you know, getting off the board. The one thing I, you have to be cautious with is not getting extension done. And I think we all know what happened with Gordon Hayward when that player goes out and gets an offer sheet. And instead of having him on a five-year deal, then he's on a four-year deal and he can become a free agent after year three. So that's the beauty of the rookie scale, right? You, you, in, a, in a perfect world, you should have that player at a minimum for eight years, four on, the, on his first contract and four um, on, on the second contract. So I would, I would think that uh, Donovan is um, priority, um, priority 1A um, as far as the Jazz. Rudy's interesting because Rudy's extension eligible, and he's also Supermax extension eligible. So you can kind of go two different ways here. Um, you can take his current number and extend him for 120% off that uh, and add another four years. Or you can go Supermax, um, you can go up to 35%. And I think that's where people <clears throat> get confused a little bit when you hear the Supermax, that has to be 35%. No, it could be 32%, it could be 33%. You can have the contract de uh, de decline in years. So you can, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And then for the Supermax, you can add another five years. Um, and you know, so it would be a total of six what he's on here. So. Um, that's interesting because, you know, Rudy, um, you know, without a deal would then, would then become unrestricted in the, in the off season of 2021. And we'll see where the cap will come in at. Um, you know, it was projected at 125 originally. I don't think it's going to be there, but it could be at, um, at 115, um, even at 115, you know, then we'll have probably 10, 11 teams that have cap space, you know, compared to four this year. So I think you'd like to get a deal done. I don't know if you'd like to get a deal done for the full boat. <laughs> I think that's a little bit costly when you're looking at the super max at 35% of the cap. And it could, that's Giannis money, 
right? That's Giannis Antetokounmpo money, 220, $230 um, million here. So I think there's probably going to have to be an agreement where both sides try to, you know, try to reach the middle here. What's the conversation like that where it's not exactly all that you can offer a player, but you have to convey that you're building something in a place? Yeah, I think you have to show him the financial flexibility of, if, of why not, if you don't commit to that amount, what else can you do with the roster? Right? Like, yeah, I know Jordan Clarkson's, um, you know, a free agent this summer, but it, you know, Jordan Clarkson in year two impacts you if you have Rudy Gobert on a supermax contract or it impacts you if um, you've got Mike Conley now coming off the books and maybe you want to do a new deal with him, maybe at a lower number. Um, or if you want to use your full mid-level in 2021 instead of the tax mid-level. Uh, or if you don't want to be a tax team in general. You know, being a, when you're in a luxury tax, um, it limits a lot of different options that you have um, as far as how you build out, um, build out your roster. So I always say that although these players, um, Rudy, uh, you know, like, you know, guys who are going into their um, last year of their contract, um, even these rookies, even like Donovan and um, Tatum and Bam Adebayo, you almost got to treat them like a free agent. Make and you make your sales pitch on what you are going to build the roster around and why this is the number we have for you. And you know, I, I think the one thing you can't do is walk away from it if there's no deal in place and there's going to be a lot of hard feelings. Um, and then you basically are going through a year of speculation that if, is he even going to be on your roster next year? What's the market for a guy like Jordan Clarkson who, when he was added from Cleveland, really provided something for the Jazz off the bench? Yeah, the market's interesting. So right now we're looking at um, Atlanta, Charlotte, Detroit, um, likely um, uh, New York as the four teams with cap space. You know, uh, I don't want to put Miami in that because of Drogic and, and Jay Crowder possibly coming back. Um, I think the market for him is probably at the minimum, the 9.3 um, uh, mid-level exception. I think that's kind of, he's one of those guys um, a mid-level type guy because he can he can do a lot of good things for you coming off the bench. There's not that many guys who can give you, you know, 18 to 20 points coming off your bench. So what does that mean for him in Utah? It means that now do you have to pay him a little bit more than that mid-level? Do you have to pay him 11th? If, if, uh, if the Lakers, for example, come in and, you, and offer 9.3 and you have 9.3, you know, what is the decision going to be? So do you have to basically do a little bit of an overpay um, you know, the hard part is, is that, you know, without Jordan there, it's hard to replace him because it's not like all of a sudden you have that $9 million or $10 million. So you basically just have your, um, your non-tax mid-level. It's an average at best free agent class. You're, you're not going to be able to let him go and go out and get Joe Harris. You know, that's not going to happen. So um, I think that's the decision that the front office has to make where what is a number that we are comfortable with paying Jordan Clarkson? Is it $11 million? Is it $12 million? It, I think it's probably going to be, have to be a little bit above that, that, um, that non-tax mid-level. Derek Favors is someone that Jazz Twitter would love to have back <laughs> uh, just uh, looking at the way that he played for this team in the years of service before. Uh, what does his market look like as he's looking for a new deal? Yeah, I think his market's a little bit less. I mean, he's probably in that five to seven million dollar, um, five to seven million dollar range. I think um, the hard part is when players do not return to their current team. So with Derek in New Orleans, then it basically now you're looking at 
the field shrinks, right? And then it's those four teams I mentioned with cap space. Uh, I don't see Atlanta coming into, into play. Um, you know, same with, um, you know, the Detroit, probably not. Um, so I think it's a matter of, and I think you could probably get them at a little bit more of a discount because I think there is a familiarity already with, um, with that roster and with this front office here. So I think his market's probably in that five to seven range. What is the most interesting storyline that you're looking forward to between now and the draft on November 18th? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and we've got an article out on ESPN about the 11, um, what to watch in free agency, the 11 big things to watch. I think right now is the, the interesting thing is, well, we don't, and we don't know when free agency will start is what's going to happen with some of these coaches vacancies, right? Well, you know, as far as we've got a bunch of openings, we've got, um, you know, we've got the Clippers who've got to get it right. I mean, that's as big as a decision. Uh, we've got New Orleans. We've got, um, we've got Indiana as an opening here. Uh, there's news that Daryl Morey just stepped down in Houston, right? So, like, you know, that's, I think that's going to be an interesting case. You know, what happens with uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden now? Who are they going to hire as coach? Um, so, I think there's a lot of storylines that, even though it's an average at best free agency, the Giannis Supermax is fascinating. What's the, what's the value for tra- Fred Van Vliet in free agency? Um, we forget about the Warriors now, right? What are they going to do with the number two um, the number two pick here. So um, I think we're, uh, we're setting ourselves up for um, a really interesting offseason just because, as you know, that Western Conference is a bear. I mean, you make the wrong move and you're fighting just to get in the playoffs now instead of trying to be a top you know, four or five seed. What does the Houston decision of Daryl Morey stepping down, how does that impact everybody in the West? Well, it makes them, I think people probably smell a little bit blood in the water. I think it makes them a little bit more vulnerable. So now you have teams that will probably make a call and see, is James Harden available? Right? You never know. I mean, you probably wouldn't have done that if uh, Daryl was, um, um, you know, going to be there. Is PJ Tucker available? Right? Guys like that. I think it's, uh, it's interesting because... As you know, the dynamics in the locker room are 50% half of the battle, maybe even more, 75% of the battle there. Um, and how do these players react to whoever the new head coach is going to be? Um, you know, it could probably go one or, one or another way. I mean, this was a team that, you know, I mean, when you look at the Western Conference with the, the two LA teams and Denver, uh, certainly Utah, Dallas, Houston, Golden State now, I mean, this is a uh, this is a tough conference. Well, and you have to give respect to what Daryl did there, because as as you saw, he was always willing to take on the Warriors and add to his team year after year. While you can't say the same about a, a couple of other teams in this league. Yeah, I mean, and I said that um, earlier that the one thing I'll remember at the tenure of Dal Morey that he didn't punt or on free agency or, the, or trades, right? Like he was as you know, did they all work out? No. Uh, you know, you turn, you know, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, and Montrez Arell into Chris Paul, but you're one game away from the NBA championship. Um, and then you turn Chris Paul into Russell Westbrook and Covington, Robert Covington. And he wasn't afraid to try to change, change over that roster and, um, you know, take on that Golden State team. At the very least, it looks like a nemesis for the Jazz in Daryl Morey <laughs> out of the league as of right now. Certainly sets up for a very interesting 
2020-2021 for the NBA season. 100% ringing endorsement. You have to sign up for ESPN Plus so you can read all of the work of Bobby Marks as he is the ESPN front office insider. And he joined us here on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. 